Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, I know there's a lot of chatter about most recent events. Um, we thank each of you for being here. Um, we have very distinguished witnesses today. We thank you for taking the time. A number of members, both on and off this committee, have raised questions about the executive branch authorities with respect to war making. And I think you know we're moving on towards an authorization, I hope. Uh, we begin to socialize with others and this uh, hearing, which is not directly related to that, I think is of good timing. The use of nuclear weapons and from a diplomatic perspective, entering into and terminating agreements with other countries. Today we will conclude a series of hearings on these issues by examining the many considerations involved in, a pres in presidential decisions to use military force without authorization from Congress. Throughout the history of our nation, presidents have decided to deploy troops into hostilities without prior authorization from Congress in circumstances ranging, ranging from small-scale rescue operations to advise and assist missions in the support of partner nations and larger-scale military action. It is in our strategic interest to have a strong commander-in-chief with the ability to take quick and decisive military action, but that authority must be legally sound and checked by vigorous oversight and engagement from Congress on behalf of the American people. The decision to use military force is one of the most consequential any president can make and should always be among the most carefully considered. As presidents deliberate whether and how to use military force, they take into account a number of different factors. And it is these factors, the strategic, political, and legal concerns involved with such decisions that we will explore with our panel of witnesses today. First are the strategic questions. We will look at what tests the president should use in determining whether to use military force and what U.S. interest must be at stake. We will also want to examine how presidents should balance the use of force against other options. We must also look at the political considerations. Public opinion matters for obvious reasons, but when it comes to the use of American force, the support of the public and the Congress play a key role in our ability to be effective, especially when things go wrong. We hope to gain insight into how much political support should factor into a president's thinking when it comes to using force. Finally, we should look at the legal side of this issue. The reality is that unless Congress takes the rare step of withholding funding, history shows that the president's ability to initiate military action without Congress has been extremely broad. That said, discussing the legal doctrine regarding these questions is a conversation worth having. I thank our witnesses for being here today, and I look forward to their testimony and responses to our questions. And with that, I'll turn to my good friend and our ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first, uh, thank you for convening this hearing. As I said, with Secretary Tillerson and Mattis, we're before our committee. Uh, this is perhaps one of the most important responsibilities we have in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to consider circumstances and legal authority uh, for sending our men and women to harm's way. So I thank you very much for this hearing. I welcome our distinguished panel. We have some really great experts here that I hope will engage us in, in this conversation. America faces unprecedented crises around the world, from the continuing terrorist threats presented by ISIS and Al-Qaeda 
and their affiliates to a worsening nuclear crisis with North Korea, to the growing proxy fights between Saudi Arabia and Iran's destabilizing the entire Middle East. President Trump's apparent inclination to use military force and to risk war rather than to find diplomatic solutions to these crises is troubling. His attitude towards diplomacy ranges from disinterest to naivety to actively sabotaging his own Secretary of State. Finding the proper balance for the authority to use force is not unique to this president. The last two presidents have stressed, stretched their authorities to the breaking point, especially in the use of the 2001 authorization of use of military force, which in my view was intended as a necessary narrow response to the 9-11 plotters, most of whom are either dead or in custody. And while we can expect that any president will seek to stretch his or her authorities, it's also incumbent upon on those of us here in Congress to make sure that we exercise our constitutional authorities too when it comes to the use of force. Secretary Mattis confirmed at our hearing a few weeks ago that there is no congressional authority for military action against North Korea. But I remain deeply concerned that President Trump will decide to preemptive or preventive military actions against North Korea that is not justified under circumstances and that Congress has not authorized. He might even potentially seek to initiate a nuclear first strike. And as borne out by our recent hearing on this issue, we would have to rely on the strength of character and bravery of those in military responsibility for carrying out that attack to question its legality. Mr. Chairman, what also is becoming abundantly clear during the hearing with the Secretaries of Defense and State is that we also need to take stock of what we are already doing. We have U.S. troops deployed almost everywhere in the world, including in circumstances that would easily involve them in the United States in combat, as we recently saw in Niger. In addition to significantly, significant deployments in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, and major deployments in South Korea, Japan, and Europe, U.S. forces have been engaged in counterterrorism operations in Yemen, Somalia, Ethiopia, Libya, and Chad, with extensive advice, train, and capacity-building efforts, and many more. A few weeks ago, I read in Politico a story that a number of U.S. military forces in Somalia has grown this year to over 500 people, when the Pentagon qu quietly posting hundreds of additional special op personnel to advise local forces around the country. This committee has jurisdiction for intervention abroad, yet no additional authority was sought, even as the United States doubled its military forces in Somalia, potentially placing them in harm's way. This is a problem, Mr. Chairman. We've all been seized by the tragic loss of U.S. soldiers in Niger, but let us not forget that we already have seen similar losses in Somalia. In May of this year, a U.S. Navy SEAL was killed while accompanying Somalian soldiers in an advise and assist mission. The incident marked the first loss of U.S. military personnel in Somalia since 18 U.S. soldiers died there in 1993. The Black Hawk Down incident had serious consequences for U.S. engagement and policy in Somalia, just as the recent incidences in Niger and Somalia will impact how we view, train, equip, advise, assist, and accompanying missions going forward. And just last week, the Pentagon acknowledged that there are 2,000 U.S. forces in Syria. This is nearly quadruple the level of 503 authorized by the previous administration. This is yet another warning to Congress 
and the American people that the Trump national security team is greatly expanding the deployment of U.S. military forces on the ground worldwide with minimal congressional consultation, minimal buy-in from the American people, minimal limitations, and minimal transparency. So as we contemplate the impact of these missions, we must engage in a serious gut check and ask ourselves, what are the consequences of our military personnel being involved in places where lethal action seems almost inevitable? Mr. Chairman, I think we are seeing that over time, a kind of gray space is growing in which a significant and consequential use of force results from activities we all thought did not constitute the use of offensive military forces, such as deployment to train and equip other militaries. This is either classic mission creep or significant miscalculation about the very nature of advice and assist, train and equip missions. This committee needs to take stock of whether we are on two fronts. First, what exactly should we be doing now to ensure that the President does not engage in military actions that Congress has not authorized and that cannot be justified under the President's Article II authorities? And second, what exactly is military doing around the world right now in the Gulf between the mere training and conventional wars? A mission is growing and can be lethal. Both of these issues have consequences for our long-term foreign policy goals and national security. Yesterday, Mr. Chairman, we received the latest report submitted every six months pursuant to the War Powers Resolution. This is a four-page updating us on the deployment of U U.S. armed forces equipped for combat. There are some new things in, its, in, in compared to the June report. And I think we need to put attention to this because the President tells us this is his notification. 100 U.S. troops have been deployed to Lebanon to enhance the government's counterterrorism capabilities and support of anti-ISIL operations. Since the last report, United States forces have conducted a number of airstrikes against ISIS ter terrorists and their camps in Libya. And U.S. forces equipped for combat have deployed in Philippines to support counterterrorism operations. Folks, these are all new activities, and this notification offers us too little information about expanding U.S. military operations around the world. I think this committee needs to get a more granular understanding of these activities, the authorities on which they are being do done, and the troop distribution numbers in this country and other countries around the world. When we talk about our role, Congress's role, are inevitably talking about the War Powers Resolution, which has been much debated over the years. We need to consider whether it's sufficient to deal with the new circumstances as well as the current use of military and lethal force, or if something more is needed. I noted with interest the introduction last month of a bipartisan concurrent resolution in the House of Representatives pursuant to Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution. That resolution uh, would uh, direct the President to remove the U.S. armed forces from hostility in the Republic of Yemen, except those engaged in operations directed at, at al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or associated forces. This is an interesting example of potential ways Congress can assert itself in these matters. The 9-11 and Iraq AUMF, the purpose of its passage, have long been, been uh, overcome have now become mere authorities of convenience for presidents to conduct military activities anywhere in the world. They should not be used as legal justification for the administration's in international military activities, nor should Title X authorities become authorities of convenience for presidents to conduct lethal offensive military activities anywhere in the world. 
I will end by saying that the United States has relied too long on military force as the first response to problems of terrorism, insurgency, and stability abroad. What makes this issue even more urgent is this administration's growing reliance on military force, while at the same time pushing dramatic reductions in budgets and resources for diplomacy and development. It is quite astonishing and deeply troubling, and I think the American people need to hear more about it. Diplomacy, development, and support for human rights is critical means through which we are safer in the world. Mr. Chairman, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses, and I really hope we can have a robust discussion as to how Congress can assert its proper role. Thank you so much. Our first witness uh, really needs no introduction. I'm personally uh, indebted to him for being here today and for all the kindness he's shown me since I've been here in the Senate and moved along in understandings of uh, how we deal with these issues. I thank him so much for being here. Um, so I'd like to welcome our national security, former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. We are deeply grateful for his willingness not only to testify today, but for his sage advice over the years, as I just mentioned. Our second witness is the Honorable Christine Wormuth, um, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Ms. Wormuth is currently the director of the Adrian Arst Center for Res uh, Resilience at the Atlantic Council and previously served on the National Security Council under President Obama. Thank you so much for being here. Our third witness is Mr. John Bellinger III, former National Security Legal Counsel uh, at the State Department and legal advisor. Uh, Mr. Bellinger is currently a partner at Arnold and Porter in DC and has helped us on many occasions. We thank all three of you for being here. If you would just begin your testimony in the order introduced. Uh, I know you understand you can summarize in about five minutes. We'd appreciate it. Uh, without objection, any written materials you may have will be entered into the record. So with that, Mr. Hadley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and other distinguished members of the, uh, the committee. I uh, appreciate this opportunity to appear before you this morning on this important subject. The decision to use military force is perhaps the most consequential decision this nation can make. It can have enormous consequences for the nation's security, prosperity, and role in the rule world. It can have enormous consequences for our country's most precious resource, the lives of its citizens. Decision to use military force is the decision to put those Americans serving in our military in harm's way at risk of death and serious injury. Such a decision must be made with the greatest seriousness, consideration, and care. <clears throat> it is a cautionary tale for any president who is considering the use of military force that since World War II, the only war our nation has fought that was as popular with the American people at the end as it was at the beginning was the Gulf War of 1990 to 1991. This was because military force was used in that conflict in service of a critical national purpose. The objective of the military operation was clear. The strategy to achieve that objective was sound. The military resources committed to the effort matched the strategy. A coalition of U.S. allies and affected regional states were involved. And the objective was achieved in relatively short order and the resulting peace was sustainable. Virtually every other military operation has lacked one or more of these elements of success. Perhaps the most challenging element from a policy perspective is developing a sound strategy that will achieve the objective. 
This was brought home to me in a conversation with President George W. Bush in January of 2007, just days before he was to announce the change of strategy and surge of additional forces into Iraq. After being assured once again that his national security team believed that the new strategy would achieve its objective, he made a simple request. If you ever change your mind on this point, you must let me know, for I cannot send men and women in uniform into war if we do not have a strategy that will win. This is the mindset that the nation must have when it decides to use military force. It must have a strategy to succeed. If it doesn't, then our military should not be sent to war. And if our military is sent into combat, then it should have the resources, rules of engagement, and support that will allow it to succeed. The military instrument is too precious to be used just to avoid the consequences of a policy failure. And the same consideration should apply to Americans who risk their lives serving as the nation's diplomats, intelligence officers, development professionals, and peace builders. This is especially true because often their work is essential to consolidating the success achieved by our military. Many of the nation's efforts overseas have failed on exactly this point. The military objective has been achieved, but we have failed in helping post-conflict societies consolidate the military victory and achieve a stable and sustainable peace. Military planning needs to take this into account. John Allen, the retired military general office, officer who led U.S. forces in both Afghanistan and Iraq, has made this point in reflecting on lessons learned from these two conflicts. Planning for military operation needs to begin with the desired end state. In military parlance, that means starting with phase four and working backwards towards phase one. Whatever is done militarily must contribute to the desired end state. And this planning effort must involve from the start civilian elements of the US government in developing an integrated strategy. A stable and sustainable peace will not give rise to threat that will not give rise to threats to American lives and interests often will require helping local actors develop institutions of good governance, economic development, and security. This is the work of civilian actors every bit as important as our military. Because of the importance of the decision, because it involves the lives of Americans, the use of military force must have the support of Congress and the American people. Congress is critical because it both reflects and shapes public opinion. But Congress needs to decide what role it wants to have in the decision to use military force and reach a mutual understanding with the president, whoever he or she may be. It is now established practice that there is some level of the use of military force that the president can take without prior congressional approval. There are numerous precedents under both Democratic and Republican presidents. At the same time, it has been the practice of both Democrats and Republican presidents to bring major military op operations to Congress first. Problems arise when the line between those alternatives is not observed. My own view is that for a major military operation that carries a risk of American military casualties, a high risk of civilian casualties, especially among US friends and allies, has major geopolitical implications for American interests and position in the world, and in which American friends and allies have a major stake, prior congressional approval would be the wiser course, and any such action should be legal 
under both domestic and international law. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Christine. Good morning. Thanks, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee for the opportunity to be here this morning to talk with you about such an important issue. I fully agree with Mr. Hadley that the decision to use force is one of the most consequential our leaders can make, with implications not just for our military forces, but our public, of course, and, and as well, countries around the world. <clears throat> Throughout history, there are many examples of countries that decided to use force to address an immediate threat in the hopes of bringing about a clear resolution, only to find themselves still engaged militarily in the same place years, if not decades later. I suspect when Truman made the decision to come to South Korea's aid in the 50s, he didn't envision the possibility that we would still have troops on the peninsula in 2017. Similarly, history is full of examples of countries that decided to use force thinking that they would prevail quickly, only to find that wars can drag on longer and be far costlier than originally thought. In 1914, Kaiser Wilhelm and his generals thought that they could make quick work of France and Russia and keep Britain out of the war altogether, but they were defeated four long and bloody years later in World War I. And we in the United States only have to look at our more recent wars to see how they can defy their original timelines, whether it's in Vietnam, Iraq, or Afghanistan. Clausewitz reminds us that war is unpredictable. He cautions us that no one should start a war, or rather no one in his senses ought to do so, without first being clear in his mind what he intends to achieve by that war and how he intends to conduct it. When deciding to use force, a nation and its leaders must think deeply about what national interests are at stake, whether those interests are sufficiently vital to merit putting lives at risk, and whether there's a strategy to achieve the desired goal. There has to be a clear understanding of what the strategic objectives are, a vision for how all of the instruments of power, not just the military, but also our diplomatic, economic, and other instruments can come together and be used, and confidence that those instruments of power are going to be sufficiently resourced to be able to achieve the goal. We only have to look at our ongoing operations in the Middle East and Afghanistan to realize that aligning all of these elements of strategy is much easier said than done. In the complicated security environment we now face, policymakers may find it tempting to reach for the most well-resourced tool in our foreign policy toolkit, the U.S. military. Our military, as you all know, is extraordinarily capable, and compared to state AID and other uh, elements of our government, it's also well-funded. But almost every current security challenge we face requires more than kinetic action. As Mr. Hadley has said in his testimony, force alone can't carry the day. I personally worry that the U.S. military has been carrying a very heavy burden for many years now, and that an imbalance has kind of crept into how we address our foreign policy, our foreign policy challenges as a result. While we need to bring all of the instruments of national power to bear on the security challenges we face, there are certainly going to be times uh, when we are called to use force, and both Republican and Democratic presidents have sometimes decided to do that without seeking prior approval from Congress. At the same time, when a president is contemplating a major or prolonged use of force, the president generally has come to Congress in advance. President Bush did so before he sent the military into Afghanistan and Iraq. President Obama sought congressional approval uh, when it came to strikes in Syria in 2013. And in the context of North Korea's continued effort today to develop a capability to strike the United States with a nuclear ICBM, military options to fully address that threat would likely rise, in my view, to the level that has typically triggered presidents to seek advanced congressional authorization. 
but there isn't an established rule or set of criteria for when a potential use of force crosses the threshold requiring the president to come to Congress in advance. The Constitution gives both branches of government important roles and decisions about the use of force to include giving Congress the power of the purse. But there are many different factors that go into how exactly each branch carries out its roles at any given time. Despite these challenges, seeking congressional support in advance for major or prolonged uses of force is sound. Clausewitz comes to mind here as well, reminding us of the importance of public support, both when deciding to go to war, but also retaining public support in order to finish the job. The debate about whether the 2001 AUMF should be replaced with a new authorization is not just about whether it can be credibly interpreted to encompass what we're doing today to fight ISIS and other similar groups, but it's also, it seems to me, about whether Congress is adequately involved in the current decisions to use force and is conducting sufficient oversight on behalf of the American people. I think this is a very healthy and important debate, and I support this committee's effort to draft a new AUMF that would clearly address the challenges we're facing. In today's environment, conflicts seem less black and white than in the past. The fight against ISIS and al-Qaeda is a trans-regional fight, and it's likely to be generational. The bad guys aren't wearing uniforms, and information technology and social media has extended the reach of adversaries and allies alike in profound ways. And as a result, I think it's essential that Americans understand and support our activities overseas. Talking to Americans about what's at stake in the world, why the U.S. is doing what it's doing, and why it matters will help the public decide what engagements to support with what resources and for how long. I think most Americans want our country to continue to be a leader in the world, but in ways that are fair and make sense and don't get in the way of our ability to address problems here at home. They're not going to give the president or a Congress a blank check. Uh, and as a result, I think our leaders need to talk to them on a regular basis. This, is, this hearing is a great opportunity to do that, and I commend you for holding it. Thank you so much. John? Thanks very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin. It's a privilege to be back again before this uh, committee. Uh, I'm going to—I'm the lawyer on the panel. We'll be focusing on the laws and the legal issues uh, governing the use of military force. And I have to say, it's a particular pleasure for me to be back with my former colleague and boss, uh, Steve Hadley, as well as Christine Wormuth. Congress has an important role to play regarding war powers and the use of force, and I commend the chairman um, and this committee for devoting substantial attention uh, to these issues. It's, it's long overdue, so I commend you for this series of hearings. Uh, when a president and his national security advisors consider the use of military force in or against another country, they must take into account the domestic and international laws governing the use of force. As the head of government and commander-in-chief of the armed forces of a nation that's committed to the rule of law, the president must follow these rules. It's also important that the president and the executive branch explain the legal and policy basis for any use of force by the United States. When the United States does not explain the legality of its actions, it appears to act lawlessly, and it invites other countries to act without legal basis or justification. So let me briefly explain the applicable domestic and international rules. Under Article II of the Constitution, the President has broad authority to order the use of force by the U.S. military without congressional authorization, not only to defend the United States against actual or anticipated attacks, but also to advance other important national interests, such as regional security 
or addressing humanitarian crises. Presidents of both parties have deployed US forces and ordered the use of military force without congressional authorization on numerous occasions. Article one of the Constitution, however, gives to Congress the authority to declare war. This authority has never been interpreted to require congressional authorization for every military action the president may initiate. However, the provision may require the president to seek congressional approval before ordering the military to launch a prolonged or substantial military engagement that would expose the US military, US civilians, or US allies to significant risk of harm. Although the president does have broad constitutional authority to order the use of force without congressional authorization, presidents of both parties have generally preferred to seek congressional authorization if it's possible to secure for any prolonged or substantial use of force. As Christine noted, President George Bush secured congressional authorization for the use of force against terrorist groups in 2001 and also against Iraq in 2002. When authorizing the use of force or deployment of US armed forces, presidents must also take into account the War Powers Resolution. The resolution requires the president to notify Congress within 48 hours after armed forces are introduced into hostilities or where hostilities are imminent or into the territory of a foreign nation while equipped for combat. And it also requires the president to terminate any introduction or use of armed forces into hostilities within 60 days unless Congress issues a specific authorization. Now I should note that the War Powers Resolution is outdated and it should be revised. The committee should consider uh, the War Powers Consultation Act of 2014, which was introduced by Senators McCain and Tim Kaine to implement the recommendations of the National War Powers Commission. So I hope you will have a look at the War Powers Resolution itself. Now the President must also consider international law rules, including treaties to which the United States is a party and certain principles of customary international law. The UN Charter prohibits the United States from using force against or in another member state unless authorized by the Security Council or the state consents to the use of force. Article 51 of the Charter recognizes that every state has an inherent right to use force in individual or collective self-defense to respond to an armed attack or to prevent an imminent attack. So let me end by discussing the application of these rules very briefly to two events, the US airstrike on Syrian bases in April and to a possible use of force against North Korea. In Syria, the president did not have congressional authorization and he instead relied on his constitutional authority as commander in chief. The administration did not cite an international law basis for the strikes. I would urge the administration to explain the factors that it believed justified the attack on Syria under international law. And finally, with respect to North Korea, the president has constitutional authority to order the use of military force against North Korea without congressional authorization if he concludes that the use of force is necessary to protect important national interests. However, if the use of military force would clearly be substantial or prolonged or would pose a substantial risk to US forces or American civilians, it may require congressional approval. Under international law, if the Security Council does not approve a use of force against North Korea, the president would have to conclude 
that the use of force was in self-defense of the United States or its allies in response either to an actual armed attack or an attack the president determined to be imminent. And any use of force against North Korea would have to be proportionate to the threat posed by North Korea. Thank you for inviting me here today. The committee has a critical role to play on these war powers issues. Thank you all three for that outstanding testimony. And with that, I'll turn to Senator Cardin. I agree with the chairman. I thank all three of you for your, for your testimony. The, the framers of our Constitution developed this check and balance system in the United States in order to protect against abuse of power. The president has a term, unlike the parliamentary systems, which the president or prime minister would not have a term. He's protected, but we have an independent Congress. And uh, that's unique, um, uh, certainly different than parliamentary systems. Mr. Hadley, I want to thank you in the, in, the, in the words of Hamilton for letting us know what happened in the room uh, when President uh, Bush made his decisions on the use of force. It was very helpful to hear that. And I think your analysis on how you determine, how the president determined the use of force was extremely helpful. But I think we now need to realize that we have a president who has a reckless self-confidence of his own instincts and makes decisions without relying upon his advisors, as we've seen over and over again, and whether we have adequate protections by the congressional independence in our responsibilities to protect against that use of power inappropriately and allowing our men and women to in harm's way. So I, th I think that's the challenge. And I think there are three areas that we've talked about, and I want to concentrate on one in my round of questioning. One was the AUMF, which we all agree is outdated, needs a, it's been abused not just by this administration, but by previous administrations. It's, a, it's authority of convenience. It's difficult to get an authorization through Congress, so they just use it. And it's inappropriate. And uh, I, I thank Senator Kane and Senator uh, Flake for their leadership on this, and I hope we can come to grips on that issue, and that's uh, our responsibility. The second was North Korea, and Mr. Bellinger, I thought you gave a very good explanation of that. So if the president were to determine he was going to use a first strike, it seems to me it would be c contrary to our responsibilities under the United Nations um, and our obligations there. But I, I, I hear what you're saying, and as I said in my opening statement, we have we have to rely on the professionalism of those who carry out the presidential orders, but it does seem to me that Congress, um, that the use of force here would be an abuse of executive power, absent an eminent threat that there was a missile pointed at us ready to be, be launched. Uh, so obviously we put that aside. But I want to get to the third point, which really has me concerned about mission creep that I talked about in uh, my opening statement. Secretary Mattis said that under the train and equip authority under Title X, that he believes he has the authority to send American troops out on combat missions with the uh, uh, troops from the, from the host country. Uh, that seems to me to be, uh, uh, we're in combat. That seems to me that without specific authorization for combat, we have seen the ability to do this and, and creep into a much more deep military involvement in a country. What can we do, or what should Congress be doing here in order to oversight uh, our responsibilities on the use of force where we now see we have American troops in so many countries around the world 
under, mission, under the mission of train and equip when they're actually participating in combat missions. Any suggestions? You know, listening, no, please. listening to you, it occurred to me where there might be some misunderstanding on that. You know, it occurred to me listening to your opening statement. You know, there's one view of training of equip, which is that U.S. forces would go to uh, training camps where there are young recruits of Iraqi or others, um, soldiers far away from the battlefield, training them uh, in the various arts and methodologies of war. That is a form of military training, and I'm sure training equip would cover that. What's really happening, though, is that our military thinks that in some sense the best way to train and equip a unit is to go with them in combat and help them succeed in con combat. And I think our military, and you can have them before you, would view that as part of the train and equip mission, indeed, probably some of the best training and equipping that we can do. So the, and, and as you rightly say, that begins to blend into our men and women assisting others in combat. And I think, basically, the Congress and the administration needs to get a better and clearer understanding of what train and equip means and where does that begin so to how, how does Congress? Okay, I, I don't disagree with your assessment. How does Congress get a better grip on this? Because as we saw under the AUMF, we give one two-line authorization and it's used for the next decade for different purposes. How do we, we, we have authorization for, 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 for training and equipping, how does Congress get a better control over the use of that authority? I would say two things, and, and Christine may have a view of that. One, a better understanding, and that comes through hearings with military officials describing the program to you. And secondly, the authorization is in statute, Title 10, which you all wrote. And it's within your authority to revise that. Yeah, so we say training and equip, but you can't go out on missions. We say going out on missions is important. I accept that but we don't want it to be creeped into a, a combat mission. How do, you, how do you prevent something like the presidential interpretation of the AUMF that they're using today from any authorization we do? What can Congress, how can Congress effectively carry out its responsibility on the use of force without hamstringing the, uh, the military from doing their mission? Senator Cardin, if I could maybe try to add something. <clears throat> Certainly when I was undersecretary at the Defense Department, <clears throat> when we were doing these kinds of train and equip and capacity building missions in places like in various countries in Africa, for example, uh, the rule was that they were not allowed to accompany local forces, partner forces, if there was any kind of likely uh, possibility that they would come into contact with adversarial forces because they weren't supposed to be there in combat. They were supposed to be doing training. So, so there was an intelligence assessment that would be made and that usually, you know, AFRICOM would have a major role in giving that assessment. And if the judgment was that by going out and doing the accompany mission, there was some likelihood that our forces would come into enemy contact, AFRICOM was not authorized to go and proceed and do that kind of mission. So, so my sense is, is that, you know, through your oversight function, maybe the thing to do is to try to drill down to really understand how the combatant commands are making the judgment about uh, what is the likelihood of making enemy contact and so that you can form your own opinions about 
whether you should have confidence in those intelligence assessments. And it is difficult. I mean, certainly there were, there were times during my tenure where we assessed that the contact, the likelihood of enemy contact was low, and we were unpleasantly surprised. Uh, but, I, but I think there was a threshold and there was a set of understandings, and we, even in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, had a healthy dialogue with the combatant commands to try to really scrutinize their assessments in that regard. That's all. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Flake, I, I, I wanted to ask John a question. I, part of what prompted this um, has been just an understanding of what could or could not happen in North Korea. Um, you know, I think everyone understands that we have a serious situation that could be developing there. As I listen to your explanation of what a commander-in-chief can do to protect our country, um, it seems to me that the, there would ever be, it would be an unlikely scenario where um, a president would come to us and say, hey, look, we're getting ready to, quote, invade North Korea, and we want to talk with you about an authorization with the use of force. I, I don't think I see that happening. Um, uh, I hope nothing ever happens, and I hope diplomatically we're able to resolve this. But it, it seems, as you laid out the criteria, that really um, a president, uh, in the type of scenario that likely would develop around a case like that, where we're worried about uh, they're getting into a position where they're close to being able to deliver something that we feel is a threat or it's destabilizing the region and therefore hurting our allies. It really does seem to me that that type of scenario that's developing um, based on all the criteria you laid out, which is the criteria, um, that really a president likely, while they might make a couple of calls to, uh, to folks to let them know in two hours something's getting ready to happen, but in all likelihood, it would be actions would be taken uh, mostly unilaterally without Congress. But in that case, uh, obviously, it could spread into a, a much larger conflict with many, many countries involved that in some cases are semi, uh, at least regional superpowers, if not greater. Now, did I, did I hear you wrong when you were laying out the criteria and the likely scenario that could develop should the North Korea situation get out of hand. That's to me, Mr. Chairman, as a legal matter. Yeah. So let me say two things. I mean, one, uh, an authorization doesn't have to be immediately before an attack. It could be a long time before. Uh, recall that the authorization that President Bush sought for Iraq came six or eight months before uh, the actual invasion of Iraq. And Congress passed that authorization not because they expected the president to immediately invade Iraq, but because they wanted to go on record and give the president the authority uh, so that it was clear from two branches of government that there was authority to use force against Iraq. I think at the time I wasn't here on your side of the, uh, uh, but I don't, I hope, Congress probably hoped that the president wouldn't use force, but they gave him that authority so that he had it. One could do that in North Korea with certain limitations. So we're not talking about an authority that is days before uh, an actual attack. The, pres the Congress could give the president the authority or Afterwards, if, the, pres if it is the president feels a need to act rapidly, that's what the War Powers Resolution says, is that within 60 days, 
uh, that the president should seek and Congress could pass uh, an authorization. So it could come after the fact. Uh, so it's, I take your point as a, as a matter of political practicality that if the president within a couple of weeks thinks that he is going to need to use force against North Korea and doesn't want to signal to them uh, uh, that he's going to do it by going to Congress and seeking an authorization, that would be, uh, that would be quite awkward. Hopefully behind the scenes there would be the policy consultations uh, that would go on. Did you want to say something, Steve? Yeah, I, I, would, I agree with what John said, and I would think that, and I tried to suggest in my testimony, that use of military force in the North Korea setting, given the geopolitics and given the stakes, is the kind of thing that I can't imagine a president would want to do without congressional authorization. You know, it bumps up very much to what John talked about. It's, a, it's almost a de facto declaration of war, and that's, of course, where congressional prerogatives are strongest. So the, the question is how to do that. And again, John is right. In Iraq, we did it well in advance to give strength to diplomacy to try to avoid the use of force. It seems to me that would probably be the scenario you'd want to follow here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to reserve the rest of my time, 20 seconds, and turn it over to Senator Flake, who I think is going to chair while I introduce somebody in judiciary, and I'll be right back. Oh, chair, but since I just got here, if we can turn it over to Senator Kane, and then I'll go after that. Okay, very good. Senator Kane. Menendez was ahead of me, so I don't hey, want to, I, I don't want to jump ahead <laughs> of very, him. Go, uh, let me, I'm very ready to go courteous, see him there. a very <laughs> courteous committee today. Thank you all. Well, uh, thank you, and thank you all for your past service as well as your constant willingness to come before the committee and share your, your insights. Um, I, I strongly believe that Congress has to take a much more active role in asserting our constitutionally mandated authority of declaring war and providing the authorizations for our military to engage and sustain combat operation to protect the American people. Uh, I think there's no more, in my 25 years in Congress, there's no more significant vote that can ever be taken than a authorization for the use of force because it is about uh, life and death uh, of uh, the sons and daughters of America that we send in harm's way. And so it's, uh, uh, I think, the singular most important thing we do. And I certainly believe we live in a significantly different world than our existing authorities that were passed in 2001 and 2002. Uh, and so, uh, that's why I believe this effort to try to come to uh, an AUMF is certainly incredibly uh, important and incre incredibly worthy. Now, we may have some differences about exactly what does that look like, because there are very serious issues uh, when you're going to make such an authorization that you're doing it uh, in a way that uh, if you're going to commit Americans, America's sons and daughters, that you're going to commit them with a clear objective, with a clear strategy, with an end goal, and because it is in the national interest and security of the United States. So there, there's a lot of factors there. But uh, Mr. Hadley, I, I noted in your opening statement uh, where you said there's a line uh, that says, many of our nation's top diplomats have been quick to say that the threat of judicious use of military power is often an essential element of a successful diplomatic initiative. And I'd like to pursue that idea as an element of what we're thinking about here. Um, you mentioned uh, President Obama's decision in 2013 to seek congressional approval to respond to Assad's use of chemical weapons. I was the chairman of the committee at the time. Uh, I believe the president was right to seek an approval. 
And while I'm disappointed that the, our body as a whole did not ultimately act, that authorization, which the president took to the G20 summit at that time in Russia, uh, gave him a, a credible uh, threat of the potential use of force to convince Putin that he needed to give Assad, had Assad give up his chemical weapons. And ultimately, a very important goal, getting Assad to give up at least the chemical weapons that we knew of at the time, uh, was achieved without firing a single shot. Uh, and that is an example, in my mind, of the credible use of force that can promote um, uh, a diplomatic effort. Can you discuss a little bit more uh, how a reliable threat of military action uh, can most effectively be used to bolster a diplomatic effort? In the example that comes to my mind was when um, um, Saddam Hussein uh, kicked out, and I think I have the uh, facts on this right, kicked out the inspectors uh, under the Clinton administration, and Clinton, President Clinton actually used military force against Iraq, uh, and subsequently those inspectors came back in and it gave, uh, uh, revived basically the diplomatic process to try to solve that problem. Uh, I think that's a, a good example. I think the one you gave is also a, a, a good example uh, where um, you have an integrated strategy that has diplomatic, economic, um, and, uh, and some military actions, either threats or actual use of limited military action to give credibility to the American commitment to find a solution. Let me ask you, uh, I think both of you and Ms. Warmoth uh, in your statements talk about uh, almost understanding what is the end result that we want and moving backwards and understanding the military actions that we might authorize. And I think very often we are called upon looking at a set of circumstances in which we are told this is the threat and you know we might seek an authorization for the use of meeting that threat, but that totality of the picture is not there. Now some have suggested that when we think about that totality, it's nation state building, and that became a famous phrase uh, years ago that uh, was a reason not to be engaged. But isn't it true that at the end of the day, if we're gonna send our sons and daughters in harm's way, we wanna make sure that whatever the threat is that we uh, ultimately eliminate, that we have eliminated it not for the moment, but for the long term. Can you speak to that as we think about what an authorization should be and what evidence or information should be presented to us to give any particular authorization? Can you speak to, to that uh, end game element? Yes, what we've learned is exactly that, that um, in order to consolidate the military victory, it is not nation building. We're not, we're not building the nation of Iraq. The, Amer the Iraqi people need to do that. But we've learned is that we can, and it is in our interest, to help them build the institutions of good governance, economic progress, and security, so that uh, in the wake of military activity, local authorities are able to meet the needs of their people and provide a sustainable peace, and not a, a situation in which the uh, terrorists will be invited back in. That is the sustainable end state. And what John Allen was saying is, you need to start out with a plan of how you're going to get to that end state, 
which will involve military, diplomatic, economic, and developmental objectives. You need an integrated plan for that, and then walk backwards and plan your military operation. Your military operation has to contribute and move you towards that objective. We don't do our planning for these operations that way. It's a, it, it, it's a whole different way of, of doing it. And I think one of the things Congress can do is when you're asked for the authorization to military force, say, fine, what's the phase four plan? What's the strategy for achieving the phase four plan? And how does this military operation fit into that? And once you're satisfied on that, then of course the authorization would follow. That will force the executive branch to actually do exactly what John Allen said, start with phase four and work backwards. Yeah, I appreciate that. <clears throat> Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the, uh, to the members. I, these, these issues are so important to me as a member of this committee, the Armed Services Committee, and the father of a United States Marine. Um, and I want to thank the chair and thank my colleagues and uh, Senator Flake especially for the work that we're trying to do to redraft the authorization, the 2001 authorization. There's work underway now to do that. I think that's important. Many of you have te testified about this before, so I don't want to ask you about this today. What I want to ask about is the scope of a president's Article II powers, because regardless of what Congress might decide to draft, if a president sends on, says under Article II, I can do anything, that president can make the congressional war powers uh, essentially illusory. And I'm very concerned about this administration in that regard. After the missile strikes against the Sherat military base in April, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff and I wrote a letter to the president asking for the legal justification for those strikes. I'd like to introduce the letter as an exhibit. We've received no answer. The letter was dated April 24th. Without objection. We had a hearing in October, and we had Secretary Tillerson before us, and I asked him the question of legal justification for the military strike in April in Syria, and he took it for the record and submitted a record answer that I'm going to ask my staff to give you copies of. I'd like to introduce that for the record as well. Without objection. If you would each look at this, because this suggests to me that this White House is taking a position about Article II power that would completely wipe out the Congress's power under Article I. We ask about the military justification. Quote, the April 6 U.S. military strike on Sherrod Airfield in Syria was not based on the authority of the statutory authorizations for use of military force we've been discussing in the hearing, thus not 2001-2002. The President authorized that strike pursuant to his power under Article II of the Constitution as Commander-in-Chief and Chief Executive to use this sort of military force, missile strikes, overseas to defend important U.S. national interests. Can a president just say, I am defending important U.S. national interests and therefore wipe out any obligation to have a congressional declaration with respect to military action? I take that as a legal question, and the answer which will make you unhappy is yes. Uh, the president has a uh, broad power. Uh, this is both the view of the executive. Is it, is it unlimited? If it's it unlimited, it is not unlimited. Right. It is not because unlimited if it, because if it's unlimited, it would. Wouldn't you agree with me? It would wipe out that's, war powers that, that that's Congress true, has granted but I, specifically. The answer Article. that the administration gives here, I think, is basically just the textbook answer that the president has broad authority to order the use of force to advance national interests 
whether it's a, a peacekeeping mission, whether it was Libya, whether it is these limited uh, uh, strikes in Syria, and that is both the view of executive uh, of presidents in Democratic and Republican administrations, and Congress has largely acquiesced in that. Let, let me challenge you on that in the Constitution. Uh, Jefferson, Madison to Jefferson, um, in writing about what the division of power between Congress and the executive, basically laid it out and said, we have to let the president have some power because Congress would be in recess and would be in Vermont. But when Jefferson was president and was grappling with the Barbary Coast pirates, he said, I have the ability to defend against attacks on ships, but if I want to go de defeat the Navy, I got to get con congressional power. Um, if you allow a president just to say, and I'm worried about this president. I, I, I went after the former president on the same thing. But if you allow a president to say, I'm defending important U.S. national interests, and that is a talismanic phrase that would allow the executive to wage war without Congress under any circumstance, you've essentially eliminated the congressional power under Article I. What I would say is and, there, and, there is... And, let me, and if I could, to unpack it further. Yeah. In this particular instance, the White House asserted no imminent threat to the United States, no imminent threat to any U.S. person or personnel. They claimed no legal justification under either the 2001 or 2002 rationale. They asserted no international legal justification. We hadn't been invited by Syria to invade their sovereignty. It didn't meet the international definition, Mr. Bellinger, that you cited earlier. And so the assertion that we need no international justification, all we have to do is say we are defending a national interest, doesn't that worry you that that is just so plastic that uh, a president would feel unconstrained and feel the ability to wage war with, completely without the authority of Congress? How could you square that with having Article Two be meaningful, Article One be meaningful? Mr. Hadley wanted to say something and then... On international law, uh, there does, I think the, it's not, there's not a clear basis under the UN Charter, but I would still like to have seen the administration explain why they felt it was justified under international law, if not legal. And I, I, I'm unhappy that they've just not answered the question because it's important to explain why we're doing things or at least as consistent with international law as possible. You'll notice that the, the question was asked in the QFR. But I, I did see that, and I wish that they had answered it. As former legal advisor for the State Department, I'd like to see us saying that we are acting consistent with international law as best we can. On domestic law, uh, there is certainly an upper limit, which is, and I said that in my testimony, I think that is certainly what you are saying. Uh, this example in Syria, which was pretty, was limited, it was just a couple of hours, mm -hmm. is consistent with what presidents of Republican Democratic parties have done for decades and decades. And if you think back with uh, the... Is uh, consistency the same as legality? Well, Congress has acquiesced in that over time, and the is executive... That, is that the same as legality? The, it, yeah, to a certain extent, yes, Senator, because war powers are shared between the executive and Congress, uh, and practice over time between what the Congress is willing to accept and what the executive branch uh, asserts becomes law. So if you think about the invasions of uh, Panama uh, or Nicaragua or Grenada or President uh, Obama in Libya for long periods of time. For which he was censured by the I, House. I, I, I realize that. 
Uh, in but, 2011. But, but presidents have to assert important national interests, whether it's rescuing Americans, addressing a humanitarian crisis, addressing regional stability, isn't, a variety of the, different isn't things. Isn't a, a humanitarian crisis fundamentally different than war? I mean, when we're putting the military to do typhoon relief in the Pacific, we don't have to have a debate about that under war powers. Um, well, but firing missiles uh, at, at a foreign country without an answer about what the legal justification is seems to be fundamentally different. That Well, it, de it depends on the... This, in Syria, uh, one day for an hour was not a lengthy period of time. I think that's well within the president's uh, war powers. I think what you're concerned about, though, which all of us addressed in our testimony, I as a legal matter and my colleagues as a policy matter, if we are talking about a prolonged or substantial use of force against a country, particularly one that may provoke, unlike Libya, which was prolonged and substantial, but particularly one that will provoke, likely, a counterattack on the United States, its allies, its civilians, potentially resulting in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of deaths, you know, that is probably going to bump up against Congress's power to declare war. So to end this, there clearly is an upper limit. The president has a lot of authority to act without constitutional authorization. There's a whole history of that. But what you're saying is, is it unlimited? And did this answer say that it was unlimited? I think, no, it's not unlimited. And I, I don't think that the, at least this answer said that it was unlimited. I, I will follow, I'm gone over, and I appreciate my colleagues' patience, and I'll follow up in writing for the other two witnesses. Thanks. Thank you. Absolutely. Senator Young. Well, I thank the chairman for holding this hearing and, and for the ranking member for his leadership in it as well. Uh, thank you to our panelists. Um, there's no more consequential issue than uh, the authorization of the use of military force and, and uh, doing all we can as members of Congress to get it right as we look to authorize uh, uh, these sorts of actions. Um, we are a decade and a half into, into fighting this, what's been branded the war on terror, and um, this is a hydra-headed sort of threat. It could be a, a quite long uh, war, and um, all of us want to get this right because of uh, the nature of, of uh, this, uh, because of the gravity of, of the decisions here. And uh, we not only want to get it right, some of us may want to get it exactly right in terms of uh, how our authorization of the use of military force is structured. And so I'd like to approach this slightly differently and, and talk about um, we are supposed to deliberate and then act as a deliberative body in Congress. But what happens when I think quite appropriately and necessarily with the chairman's leadership, We've decided to move forward, have this serious conversation through a series of hearings and, and, and so forth. We robustly deliberate in a public fashion on the, rest, uh, on the record. And what if some of us cling to these perfect AUMF models in our head and are unwilling to make principled compromises? What if we fail to act after we deliberate? on the question of whether or not to declare war or authorize the use of military force. Um, do we send messages to our troops in harm's way, to our adversaries uh, that we don't want to send, but perhaps more importantly, or as importantly, do we establish a legal precedent 
where we've considered acting and not acted, therefore future administrations may say there, there are broader Article II authorities than have ever been asserted before, citing congressional record, these deliberations, and others. So I'd like each of you maybe to address this, this legal component, this legal risk that we might, um, that each of us uh, might be establishing uh, by deliberating now that we've crossed what I regard as kind of a threshold, but maybe failing to act. Mr. Hadley. I think we would all say the better course is for you to agree on a new revised AUMF because it will show the American people that the Congress is behind this effort in the name of the American people. Secondly, I think there's a risk that if you don't reach an agreement, it looks like Congress is abdicating to the president and to the executive branch these authorities, which will strengthen the arguments that Senator DeCain and, and John Bellinger were talking about. But you're not out of business. I mean, we've been talking about prior authorization, but there is the after the fact. And I would remind the Senate, uh, the committee, that after President Bush announced the surge in Iraq, there were legislative efforts that were adopted by the House of Representatives that defunded it and placed operational limits that would have made the surge impossible. And this was Congress asserting its oversight <clears throat> and asserting <clears throat> excuse me, it's, prior, it's, it's um, authority over a military operation. So we can have this discussion about prior authorization, is it required from Congress or not. But if the president goes ahead and uses these authorities that have been established and Congress disagrees, you have lots of tools to get at the president post-fact. I would just add, you know, I completely agree with Mr. Hadley that I think the, the, the reason that I have favored uh, developing a new AUMF is that I think it will send a very strong signal to our military, but also to the world at large that Congress and by extension the American public are behind what we're trying to do. And I think that's very important. I mean, you know, I, I, I sat on this side of the table as an administration witness a number of times and asserted that whatever we were doing that was being challenged. So, I'm, I'm grateful my, my time is winding down here, but Apologies. no, no, that's all right. Um, I understand, I, I think all of us could articulate here why an AUMF uh, is desirable or might be desirable, why we reaffirm our prerogatives here. But what I, perhaps someone can uh, discuss this as Mr. Hadley has, um, do we establish some sort of precedent and thereby broaden perceived Article II authorities by having this public conversation and by failing to act? I, the answer is yes, Senator. Uh, there are two legal problems here. One is the issue that you and Senator Kane are getting at, and, there, and I will tell you, I can tell you from outside of Washington what extent it matters. There's much talk about the Congress is abdicating its war powers, and as a result, uh, accreting to the President more war powers. If Congress doesn't act, it leaves successive presidents. It's not Republicans or Democrats. Uh, it, uh, Senator Obama may have actually stretched things farther than President Bush did in terms of the, uh, the, the conflict in Libya and the conflict with ISIS, which were not authorized. When Congress doesn't act, presidents will. And then there are narrow legal problems as well that we discussed last time on, on detention and other issues. So we're all free agents in the Senate. These are decisions individually each of us has to make. So I don't... I'm, 
Uh, I'll just say from this senator's point of view, we need to be prepared to make principled compromises, even on an issue as consequential, even an issue where we seek such perfection as authorizing the use of military force. I've reached out to several uh, offices, Republican and Democrat, trying to synthesize different approaches. Uh, and, and there are others who, who've tried, who want this as well on the committee. Um, I think we can get there. Thank you. Uh, uh, from this senator's uh, vantage point. Thanks, Chairman. I yield back. Just before turning, Senator Merkley, I, <clears throat> look, I'm, I'm, I think everyone knows I'd like for us to have a new AUMF. I do believe that there's legal grounding for the current president, the president before, the, before him, to, to do what they're doing. It, it, it sounds, just for what it's worth in listening to the debate, I mean, so what, you're, what we're saying is, that we need to write a new authorization, which I agree with. I mean, we, we're working right now with the committee to make that happen. To make legal what, for, the, for Congress to weigh in on what the administration's already doing to make us relevant. It's kind of an odd thing, just for what I'm, I mean, really. So, okay, we, the, the activity's underway, and for us to be relevant, then we need to pass something. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sorry, it's just a little bit of a weird thing. Um, I also say that the difficulties here, as we all know, is what we're really doing is we're authorizi authorizing, uh, not really, a, it, it's not the standard war. I mean, we're basically saying we are allowing the President of the United States to conduct activities to police around the world in countries all over the world activities relative to ISIS it, and we know it's going to go on for another 20 or 30 years okay uh, I'm slightly exaggerating to make a point but it's going to go on for a long long time we have no idea where it's going we have no idea which countries I mean which entities are going to mutate out of this and so it makes it a little more difficult than saying we're declaring war uh, as we did in World War II or some other place. So again, I'm not trying to get us a buy here. I'm just saying to try to craft something that takes into account that this is activity that's going to take place in places we haven't even thought of today. Mr. Chairman, can I just okay. comment okay. just very briefly on it because this is helpful for us because we yeah. are trying to get to an AUMF. It, it seems to me that the overwhelming majority of members of Congress want to support the use of our military to fight ISIS. We, we think that's an no, no appropriate question. use. Yeah. What we don't want to see happen again is what happened in 01 when we passed authorization that's misused by the executive branch. And, and I just think what's, with this comment here about Article II powers, that from my position, I don't understand why we don't pass an authorization that is current to what they need today. If the president needs more, runs into a circumstance, he has the Article II powers that has been adequately explained. If it becomes prolonged, he should seek the change from Congress. So I, I just point out, I don't think we have to be too concerned about not giving the president enough authority. Yeah. Whatever we do, he'll have enough authority. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think we all know we're circulating some principles now, and, and I think we've hit a, what I hope is a sweet spot uh, as it relates to what a new authorization ought to be. But uh, I'm just saying the complexity of it is that, that we're talking about one that's not in a specific country with necessarily a specific group that we know is going to mutate 
just as the 0102 authorizations have. So uh, again, not giving us a pass, it's just a little different kind of thing. It's really a, it's really a, a, an ongoing policing activity with our military and many other instruments uh, that we have within our government in places that we don't even know of today, which makes it uh, somewhat different. So, Senator Merkley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all, all three of you. And Mr. Hadley, I was in, intrigued by your noting that if we think that the, the uh, Chapter 10 powers are being uh, overused, we could constrain them legislatively. But if you read the Title 10 powers, they provide no foundation for company forces, and it's in direct contradiction uh, to the uh, War Powers Act, which says that the introduction of armed forces includes, in quote, the assignment of a member of such armed forces uh, to command, coordinate, participate in the movement of or accompany the regular or irregular military forces of any foreign country or government when such military forces are engaged or there exists a threat that such forces will be engaged in hostilities. So you're asking us to come back and write what has already been written is sitting in the law. And so uh, I, I find that rather absurd. Uh, the fact is it just gets routinely ignored. And then the question becomes where are the teeth? If the law is already written quite clearly by determination, has been signed in the Oval Office and lays out this boundary, but it's absolutely ignored, where, where are the teeth? And you've responded to that just uh, a moment ago by saying, well, Congress can come back and cut off funds. Well, Congress is very uh, reluctant to cut off funds in such a precise and detailed micromanagement fashion. Uh, the courts are really provide no teeth for this either, in general, because the Supreme Court, uh, I'm asking this more as a question, but it basically defers uh, to the executive in issues of national security. So am I right to just basically say we laid, out, we laid it out quite clearly, the administration violates it with impunity, and we basically have no teeth except what you're saying to come back and cut off funds? Uh, I think that's a little harsh. Uh, maybe, maybe um, but it's, this is an area where Congress and the President are, are condemned to struggle. And I think the only real approach is for the Congress and the President to sit down and develop some rules of the road. Where is that line that Congress really wants to be in on the ground floor and be asked for authorization? And where is that line where the Congress actually is willing to let the President act and then exercise oversight and, 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 and tell him what's wrong? And it shows the problems of, of how these things, if you take Christine's rule, which is a very good one, and cabin Article 10. So train and equip means you can't go out with someone to a military operation against the bad guys. And the military wants to do it, then they will invoke the 2001 or 2002 authorization to use military force to do it, which authorizes a lot of actions below a level that requires or would suggest that the president yeah. needs to come back to Congress. Okay, so, so no, it's, that's, it, no, that's, it's, I, it's hard to do yeah. by, by drawing lines, and I think it's, it's got to be by an ongoing consultation process, which is why I think the consultation approach is better than the War Powers Act. Let me just point out that this administration doing. is absolutely uh, allergic to consultation or transparency when it comes to, to, the, to these issues. Uh, the, um, but as you noted, uh, that brings us to 
the question of the authorization of use of military force. And I'm fascinated by listening to expert after expert cite the Associated Forces Clause of the AUMF, which does not exist, which was completely invented as a justification of moving from what's clearly stated in the AUMF to giving broad ability way beyond what was in the AUMF, which is part of what's given rise to doing a new AUMF. But if we can invent language to insert into an existing AUMF, why can't it be inserted into the next AUMF? I'm really concerned that the boundary of the clarity of law is so routinely violated now when it comes to these issues that we have put ourselves in an extremely difficult uh, spot uh, in, in terms of clearly articulating uh, the, the, the boundaries, our, congressional, our responsibilities under the Constitution, if you will. And Mr. Bellinger, uh, you noted substantial and prolonged. I wanted to uh, uh, turn to uh, North Korea. Uh, the, um, uh, as part of a congressional delegation that uh, went to South Korea and China and Japan to hold conversations throughout, uh, the, um, I'm, I'm not convinced the president has a, a, an understanding of, of the circumstances or even the, the ability of uh, the conventional deterrence of North Korea to destroy Seoul, which has a, a broader population of over 20 million people uh, within the boundaries, just a short distance uh, reach of artillery. Uh, but any attack on North Korea that's, that uh, produces um, that is, is likely to produce an artillery response is certainly substantial in my mind. And in that regard, do you have a sense that the president would need to come to uh, Congress for, for authorization to engage in such an act? Again, this gets at the issue of before or after. Uh, certainly, I mean, as a uh, policy matter, and you've heard this from both my colleagues, if the president's considering any use of force against North Korea, unless it is just instantly in response to a shoot down of an aircraft, there ought to be consultation. Uh, the, the War Power, neither the War Powers Act nor the Declare War Clause say that Congress has to authorize before a use of force. There would be certainly reasons why, but it could be afterwards. And so, uh, there should be consultation beforehand. I think what I'm saying is, although it is not crystal clear, and as you know, you can never find two lawyers who are going to agree, if the president were going to actually take a use of force against North Korea that is beyond the shoot down of a single aircraft or something like that, but that is going to result in the possible devastation that you and Senator Kane have suggested, uh, then it seems reasonably clear that uh, under Article One, that the Declare War Clause requires Congress to authorize that. Not necessarily before the fact, although there would be reasons to do it before the fact, but if the President were continuing a war afterwards and Congress didn't authorize it, I think there's a good argument that the President was not acting consistent with either his powers or Congress's powers. When you think of this substantial and prolonged, are, are you seeing it as it has to be substantial and prolonged, or that it either substantial or? Long. I would say it would be or. I mean, there are there are certainly past cases where there's been a, a prolonged uh, uh, presence uh, that really didn't raise serious declare war issues, and there are substantial, but we're quite short. No, I'm going to appreciate that 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 answer. I share that opinion, and I, I really hope the administration uh, understands that that it needs to uh, consult before uh, starting such a, a hostility. Thank you all very much. 
Thank you. Senator Isaacson. I apologize to the panelists that I'm late, and I probably missed what I'm getting ready to ask, and I apologize in advance for asking a dumb question. But I have to come in, in the middle of the discussion with, Mr. with uh, Senator Merkley, and I want to get a couple of things clear. In the case of the War Powers Act, the President has to come to Congress within 90 days of utilizing force for the Congress to authorize any continuation of that same force. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Six, so the, 60 days with, would be required to terminate and would have to ultimately terminate after 90 days. That's what right. the War Powers Resolution says. But the President does have the authority to initiate such an action without congressional authorization. That's, I, there's, I would say there's not full agreement on that, but I, I would certainly say that's what the War Powers Resolution says. That you have to notify within 48 hours of doing something, but you've got, the President's got 60 days or up to 90 days to continue unless he gets authorization. You don't right. want to tie your military's hands behind their back in a conflict. The last thing in the war you want to do is constrict them from being able to do what's appropriate in that case, I think. Thank you for that answer. And thank you, Mr. Hadley, for all your hard work on behalf of the country and previous administrations and what you're doing now. And what you said, I, I think I wholeheartedly agree that, that when you made your comment about the commitment of resources and forces, it should be done always in, in consultation with the Congress, but that it ought to be consultation, not mandatory, uh, some mandatory hoop to jump over. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That would be my view. And hopefully the consultation would always be going on so you got prepared for what might seem to be to the public instantaneous, but after, was after a long period of trying to avoid what happened. Just for reference, in 1983, and I think I'm right on this date, I could be off by a year or so, KL-007, Korean Airlines, was shot down over, this, over the um, South China Sea or somewhere in that part of the world. And our con the congressman from my district, who had the 7th District of Georgia representing Congress, Larry McDonald, was killed in that particular shoot-down. And there was, there's an example of a hostile act that was taken against a United States asset, a, or actually it was Korean Airlines, but it, it was loaded with American citizens, where the president could have, if based on information he or she had or, or was get delivered to them by intelligence forces, could have initiated a, a military act that subsequently would have had to come to Congress to affirm. Is that not correct? That's correct. I think he, the, and there have been other situations where a president has uh, taken an action uh, in his constitutional powers and then sought ratification later. Well, the only point was that there is a clear reference to a case that took place in the 1980s where an action of hostility was taken against American citizens in a commercial airliner and a president could have done that and did not and consulted with the Congress. So I think what we do, what the parameters that we have laid out now before our administration, for Congress and for the President of the United States, are sufficient to act expeditiously if attacked, but always before the, with the ratification of the Congress, even if it's retroactive, as in the case of a certain sudden hostility. So I think I just want to go on record as saying I agree with Mr. Hadley's comment exactly that. Our role is one of consultation leading up to the final vote, which would take place under the War Powers Act. But initially, there's no need for consultation if it's a hostile attack against us right away. That's correct. I just want to get that on the record. Mr. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I'm sorry I missed um, much of the discussion. But just to follow up a little bit on what you were, your line of questioning, Senator Isaacson, has there been a suggestion that we cannot respond to a hostile attack without 
an authorization for use of military force? Was that what you were suggesting, Senator Isaacson? Okay. I just wanted to make sure I didn't misunderstand something. Um, Mr. Hadley and Ms. Wormuth, both of you pointed out that it's important for us as we think about how we address um, potential conflicts to recognize that we have not only tools of the military, but tools from our diplomatic efforts and our um, aid um, efforts. And I just wonder if, if you can, either one of you can talk about whether you think we are effectively now making use of all of those tools as we look at the various conflict areas that we're facing. Um, let's say North Korea first, and then um, also probably North Korea, if you could just address that specifically. Happy to, Senator Sheen. I, I certainly have, as I said in my statement, I have concerns that, that generally the table has tilted for a variety of different reasons too much towards using the military tool uh, to the detriment of our others. Part, there, there are many reasons for that. You know, our, our, our diplomatic uh, resources aren't as, aren't as well resourced as I think they need to be, even under the Obama administration and previous administrations, but certainly I would have that concern now. Uh, and I think given the circumstances in North Korea, you very much want to use that diplomatic tool as much as you can. We're using the economic tool in the form of sanctions, and I think that's very appropriate. But, but I think we need to do more as a country to try to give more resources to the agencies that do development and reconstruction, that do diplomacy, because those are just as important and in some cases more important. Uh, part of our challenge, I think, is generating civilian capacity that can be ordered into uh, dangerous places is is difficult to do, and that's I don't have all the answers for how to fix that. Well, Mr. Hadley, as you talk about stage four, where do we want to get in um, conflict areas? And as we think about where we currently have military operations right now, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, Somalia, I, I would argue that it's maybe even more important in most of those places for us to have the diplomatic and assist economic assistance tools than to follow on or at the same time with our military than in some cases to have the military there because if we're gonna have, if we're gonna resolve the military conflict and we don't have anything at the end for stage four, we're not going to achieve our objectives. Would you agree with that? I would, Senator, and, and I agree with what, with what Christine said. And, you know, we're still not as good about how to, to mix the, the security, the developmental, the governance aspects that are required to bring stability over the long term to places like Syria and Iraq. And the thing I'm worried about is that we've heard a lot about military operations to clear those areas of ISIS, a lot less of how we're going to help those people in Syria and Iraq build institutions that will prevent ISIS from coming back. And, you know, it's, you know, people say, well, that's nation building and we don't do nation building. It's really not. It is taking steps to help people build institutions that will resist terrorists coming back that might threaten the United States. And in your testimony, 
Mr. Hadley, you mentioned the need to maintain public support for ongoing military operations. I certainly agree with that 100% as a, um, a student of the Vietnam War growing up and recognizing what happened in this country during that time. But does transparency about our military deployments and the rules that we're operating under improve or impede the cooperation that we have with our allies and partners in our efforts? Well, there, there certainly should be transparency with the Congress, and that can be get done in a way where it is all public and transparent to the public. In some instances, because of those considerations, you're going to want to do it in a closed setting so that Congress is, is aware. But Congress should be aware, I think, in, in every uh, – there's no reason why, why, why Congress should not be aware about the size and scale of the deployments. I think the problem is if you only talk about the deployments – you're not going to generate the kind of public support you're talking about. You've got to talk about why are we there? Why does it threaten Americans' interests? What's at stake? What's our strategy? How we're implementing the strategy? Why we think we can succeed? And then you put all the facts and figures into context. But, you know, we have a tendency to go right to the facts and figures and none of the context. And therefore, Americans don't really know what we're doing and why we're doing okay. it. And that's the point President Bush kept as I talked in my te testimony, if you're going to put, if you're going to engage our military forces, the president needs to be explaining the context, the why, the how, and why it matters over and over to the, again to the American people to maintain that support that is so crucial over the long term. Because we are going to be at this for a long time. And the American people under got to understand that and why it's important and that we have a strategy and it's working. You know, that's just essential if we're, if, if we're, because we are going to unfortunately be at this for a while. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, for holding this important hearing and to this uh, uh, very experienced uh, seasoned panel uh, for the time you're dedicating with us today. I couldn't agree with you more, Mr. Hadley, on the point you were just making. We will be at this a very long time. The American people need to understand what our strategy is. We need to understand what our strategy is. And they need to understand where our troops are fighting and why they're fighting. Uh, both of you have made the point in your testimony that public support is vital for the success of military missions, diplomatic missions, development missions abroad. Uh, and I think the October attack that uh, took the lives of four American soldiers in Niger was a reminder, a bracing reminder to us, many members of Congress uh, are unaware uh, that we have service members deployed in West Africa or supporting counterterrorism missions in the Philippines or um, deployed in the Horn of Africa. So our current system of notification um, is demonstrably underperforming. Can I put it that way? Um, how would you suggest we strengthen this dialogue between the President and Congress in a way that makes more certain that members of Congress are aware of where and how and when our forces are being deployed and uh, through us engages the American people? And I'll suggest my answer and then see what you think of it which is that although an exercise to craft a bipartisan AUMF may or may not change things in the short term in particular jurisdictions on the ground, that exercise is exactly pointed at forcing the conversation between the executive and the legislative branches, forcing it between the parties here on this committee, and then engaging the public in some dispute about whether um, we are or are not overreaching uh, in our missions in the world. Do you think I'm right about that, or do you think there are other ways we can improve transparency and engagement by the public, if you would, Ms. Wormuth, Mr. Hadley, and then I have a different question for Mr. Bellinger. 
I certainly think the effort to try to craft a new AUMF, an updated AUMF, is a very important piece of having that more transparent dialogue and helping Americans understand why, where we are, why we're there, what we're trying to do, uh, and to give the public an opportunity to be engaged in that debate. Um, but I don't think it ends there. I mean, for example, you know, what happened in Niger was actually not covered under AUMF, as you know. That was, that was just a, a capacity building exercise that, you know, ran into enemy contact when it wasn't expected. So I think it, it has to be bigger than that. It ha there has to be, I think, a broader effort to talk to Americans on a regular basis about what we're doing. And, and, and I think you cannot over-communicate. Members of Congress, President of the United States can't over-communicate when it comes to these kinds of important things that we're doing. Mr. Hanley? I think you're absolutely right. It is one forum for conducting that conversation. Hearings are another. I read the transcript of the hearing this committee had with Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson on use of force and AUMF. I thought it was terrific. Uh, and finally, informal consultations. When I was National Security Advisor, I was up on the Hill a lot during the 2005 and 2006, the grim days about uh, the war in Iraq, talking informally with members of Congress, some of whom had um, had sons and daughters in that conflict. They were some of the most difficult conversations I had. Terribly important. So I think there are a lot of different forms where this conversation needs to occur. Thank you. Mr. Bellinger, you've called for Congress to revise and update the War Powers Act. That's already been discussed with a number of members. Um, and there was a reference, I think you made it, uh, to a uh, McCain-Cain bill from, I, I think, initially introduced several years ago. Um, what do you think are the elements um, that should most be updated, um, and how would those revisions strengthen our oversight? Help me understand how that would contribute to this dialogue. So thanks very much for that question, because really a lot of this is about the War Powers Resolution and whether Congress is requiring uh, uh, compliance with the War Powers Resolution, whether the President is, is actually following it. So I, I hope you all really will have a look at it. Um, so two things. One, the, the, the recommendation of the National War Powers Commission, which is a serious commission chaired by Jim Baker and by Warren Christopher, uh, revised the War Powers Resolution in a very narrow way, really just to say, instead of these 48-hour reporting requirements and 60-day termination requirements, which presidents of both parties have largely been ignoring or at least stretching, uh, it should just be all about consultation. Um, now, one could argue that maybe that's too narrow, that we're taking what was a fairly restrictive bill and just turning it into a consultation requirement. But this is, I think, what we have been talking about for the last 90 minutes, is there needs to be better consultation. And maybe you can put more meat on those bones in terms of consultation. I'll just mention a couple of the particular problems and, and then stop that the, you know, there because of the types of modern conflicts that we have now, it is very difficult for presidents to report things within 48 hours that may be classified. Now, Congress has now started accepting classified reports. The termination requirement uh, is really the biggest problem in that if Congress will not authorize a, uh, a, a, a new authority, it puts the president uh, in the bind of either stopping something that actually has popular support, like the ISIS war, uh, declaring the War Powers Resolution unconstitutional, which the president doesn't really want to do, or taking the third option, which is what all of you have, have expressed concern about, is to just take the ball and run with it and stretch 
uh, whatever authorization the president has been given beyond anything that's recognized. So uh, that's really been the problem. The War Powers Resolution was set up in a way that ought to work, but has not. Thank you. Are there any additional follow-ups? Are we, Senator Cheney? Um, I'm not sure who to direct this to. I, I don't think it's come up, but um, Mr. Hadley, you talked about reading the transcript of the hearing we had on the AUMF, and one of the things that was raised at that hearing was a question about the current status of the conflict in Korea. And so maybe this is for you, Mr. Bellinger. Does the fact that we don't have uh, a peace treaty with North Korea change the status of what the president could do in terms of going into North Korea without an AUMF or without consulting Congress? Good question. I know the argument. I, I don't think uh, that really flies. The argument is that there uh, that the war, the armed conflict with North Korea has never actually ended, that there's been an armistice, and that because the North Koreans have uh, broken the armistice and, in fact, have publicly said that they are no longer observing it, that under traditional principles of armed conflict, if there's merely an armistice which is then broken, then we go back into a state of armed conflict. So, you know, you could get some academic lawyers to say, sort of surprised to everybody, we're actually in a state of armed conflict with North Korea right now, which means uh, that we could immediately start using force against them without uh, uh, congressional authorization uh, because we're in an armed conflict. I've, you know, that's the theoretical argument. Uh, I just think uh, 60 years later uh, that, uh, that, that I, I wouldn't buy that. And Mr. Hadley, Ms. Wormuth, do both of you agree with this? Yes, I'm not a lawyer, but it sounds sensible to me. I think the argument's too clever by half, as they used to say. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Markey. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Mr. Hadley, how do you think North Korea would respond to a U.S. nuclear first strike? Well, I... I I don't quite see a scenario where the U.S. would make a nuclear first strike, but I think the if, obvious if, answer if is the, it if would the discussion be, that we've heard out of some parts of the White yeah, House that we yeah. could take preemptive action against the existing nuclear yeah. I, uh, I think infrastructure in North Korea. What, what do you think uh, Pyongyang would do? Would it lay yeah. down its arms, or do you think it could escalate? Well, the, the risk that everybody has talked about, which makes the military options so difficult, is what was mentioned by members of this committee this morning, the fact that North Korea is able to hold Seoul, a city of almost 20 million people, hostage with artillery, rockets, mortars, and missiles, and, uh, and cause enormous loss of life. And that puts enormous constraints on any uh, consideration of use of military force because of the potential for North Korea retaliation. So given the fact that it would lead to most likely a, a massive increase in hostilities between North Korea and at least South Korea, but uh, the United States. Uh, do you think that uh, the United States, do you think the White House should be required to get specific statutory authorization from, con uh, from uh, Congress before uh, ordering a military attack? We all, I think, have said 
in our testimony this morning that this is the kind of scale of operation that uh, would, in our judgment, something the president should go to the Congress of, but for. But I would just say, you know, you can see this situation getting to the point where it, the choices become excruciatingly difficult. If North Korea demonstrated an intercontinental range ballistic missile able to reach the territory of the United States, if it demonstrated that it had miniaturized a nuclear warhead to go on the top of such missile, uh, and if we had intelligence that it was readying on a launch pad such a missile, that's going to put enormous pressure on the president to make some kind of pre pre preemptive action if he has the capacity to do so in order to protect the citizens of the United States. So you can see this. This is why what North Korea is doing is so dangerous is that it can evolve into situations that will pose excruciatingly difficult choices for the president and for the Congress. Exactly. So should the, I'm glad you said, and the Congress. So should, should the Congress be involved in that decision if um, the president wants to launch a preventative uh, nuclear attack on North Korea? I think one of the things that comes out of the discussions we've had in this hearing today is that Congress and the, that the North Korea situation is so potentially so grave that Congress and the United States and the President ought to be having consultations on it now and continually. So as, as the Chairman said, there's no surprises as we go through this very challenging uh, time that we're facing in terms of managing North Korea. Right, but uh, let me ask you, Ms. Wormuth, do you, do you think that the Congress should have a vote before there is a preventative nuclear war which is commenced, understanding that the consequences could be that we don't hit all of the nuclear sites, that there are clandestine sites there, and the catastrophe is that they launched the first one that they have that we didn't get at the all of the troops and the Americans that are in North Korea and 200,000 Americans are dead later on that afternoon. Should the United States Congress have voted on that scenario before uh, the president is allowed to launch a preventative nuclear strike. I think, Senator, we, we had a conversation. I think I don't think you were in the room a little bit earlier about the fact that that President Bush secured the authorization to go into potentially go into Iraq many months before we actually did the invasion, and that and that uh, one of the benefits of that was that it demonstrated very visibly to the world enemies and friends alike, mm -hmm. that, that we were prepared to do that, and it strengthened our diplomatic hand. So I, I can see a circumstance where something like that would be beneficial, and I certainly agree with Mr. Hadley that the, the military consequences of getting into kind of an engagement with the North Korea are going to be substantial and, I believe, prolonged, and I think it would be very healthy for Congress to have a say in that, because the American public is going to have to be prepared to um, support the consequences of that. Yeah, and Mr. Bellinger, I know you've already answered the question, if you could. Uh... Uh, uh, no, and there's a legal component to this, and the a, a nuclear strike against North Korea, I think, would bump up against the declare war clause. It would obviously end up in a prolonged, substantial uh, uh, conflict. Uh, so I think that is something that likely would require a congressional authorization. Uh, the way I think that would work would be, one would hope, there would be the consultation process beforehand on something of this sensitivity, presumably be done behind closed doors. And this was where, frankly, it would be like Syria, which sounds like apples and oranges, but President Obama came to Congress, consulted, 
he got the message that there was not going to be an authorization and that if he went forward, that he was going to be basically on his own uh, on his Article II powers, and he decided not to go forward. The same thing would happen here if President Trump came and consulted and Congress said, uh, we're not going to authorize that either before or afterwards. Then the president is on notice that he does not have congressional support. And in that, this case, probably unlike Syria, uh, it, he probably would be violating the, uh, yeah. the president's or the Congress's right to declare war. And he would be on notice beforehand and then would have to go on on his own. Right. And just to go back in time, it's also very important to know that we had UN inspectors on the ground in Iraq for four months and they could not find a nuclear program. There was no mushroom cloud as the next threat to the United States. And Dick Cheney just went on TV and lied that, Trump, that uh, Saddam had reconstituted his nuclear weapons program. And he said that on Meet the Press to Tim Russert the day before um, the, uh, the war began. So, so even with Congress playing a role, it still left a lot of discretion to the administration to mischaracterize what had been found on the ground by the UN inspectors and we're still paying the price for that, but that was just a deliberate set of lies that were told to the American people. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, if I might, I just want to thank our witnesses. Uh, we do that almost at every hearing, but I must tell you, I think your testimonies have been extremely valuable to our deliberations, and I, I thank you for that. It's been, it's helped us a great deal. We, the chairman will say the record will be open for a certain number of days. Uh, I'm going to just ask that you be available uh, to help us as we try to sort through how to deal with this on an ongoing basis. Uh, I would just make one further observation, and that is, this is a tough subject under any scenario for us to deal with, so it's not an easy subject. But also, we're dealing with an administration where the president is doing things with his national security team and their agencies, which are different than previous administrations, that present additional challenges to us in trying to figure out how is the best way to deal with the use of our military. So the challenges are, are, are really very, very difficult for us, but it's something we must deal with. And we thank you very much for adding a great deal to our um, understanding on, on our responsibilities. I want to thank you also. I uh, Mr. Bellinger, I, 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 I don't know that I want to leave open uh, the last comment about uh, Syria. We, we did pass out of this committee um, an authorization for the use of force, and I don't know if we'll ever know fully whether the president, who had a 10-hour operation planned, um, that I think did uh, certainly firmly sit within his presidential powers at the time, at a 10-hour operation planned uh, where no boots were going to be on the ground. And whether that was ever uh, an act to keep from acting by coming to Congress, or whether it was an act to respect Congress's role, uh, we'll never know. And I'm not trying to be pejorative here. I do know this committee acted and passed one out. Uh, I, certainly, uh, in fairness, we were in the height of an election campaign. There was no question that uh, uh, people on my side of the aisle, that generally speaking, would have supported this effort under maybe their own a president of their own party, uh, no doubt rebelled in ways that, uh, you know, I was very, very surprised. So, so who knows how the mix of that uh, would have ended up. Again, it could have been done easily without an authorization, no question, uh, based on the circumstances at hand. 
Um, I was really proud of this committee and the way that it acted during that time. Um, what was really at stake, um, you know, the, the Friday evening walk around the, the, the White House that took place, who knows? But, uh, Senator, uh, Mr. Hadley, did you want to say something in response to, yeah? I, I just wanted to say I have great respect for Senator Markey, and I uh, understand his comment. I just want to say that from the standpoint of the Bush administration, while the inspectors were not able to find WMD, the intelligence community was telling us that they had <clears throat> stockpiles of chemical weapons, biological weapons, and a, a revived nuclear program, and that was the basis under which we were operating. So, and it was not a case of knowing lies, but it was a case of intelligence that was wrong. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate you. Uh, <clears throat> Um, making that point. And with that, again, I, I want to agree with Senator Cardin, uh, outstanding testimony. We thank you all for your service to our country in this regard, but in other regards also. And I uh, hope at some point all of you are back in a more formal capacity in that regard. Um, with that, um, the questions will remain open uh, uh, until the close of business Friday. We know each of you have other responsibilities to the extent you could answer those in a fairly prompt manner, we would also appreciate that. Uh, again, thank you, and with that, the committee's adjourned. <laughs>